Well, this morning we are going to get back into our series in Matthew. We uh, began this series at the end of 2020, uh, looking at the birth narratives in Matthew around Christmas time. We're going to end it, Lord willing, uh, on Resurrection Sunday this year, looking at Christ's resurrection. And so we're excited to, uh, I'm excited to enter the final stretch of this series together. Uh, today we're going to be Matthew 22. Before we turn there, I want to talk about the end of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. At the end of that letter, Paul gives this instruction, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now when you think about that instruction, here's what's interesting, is it seems to assume that outsiders will be asking us questions. If the instruction is that we may know how to answer each person, then the reality must be that people are coming to us and asking questions, and we need to answer them. Peter gives a similar instruction in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. He wasn't writing that to an apologist's program. He was writing that to a church. And again, the assumption is that there will be occasions when we are being asked questions about our faith, and the instruction is that we need to be ready for such occasions. The New Testament expectation is this. As we live as followers of Christ in this world, the world will ask us questions, and we must be ready to answer well. In her book, Confronting Christianity, author Rebecca McLaughlin answers 12 hard questions that our culture poses to followers of Christ. Some of these questions are, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? How could a loving God send people to hell? And we could easily think of further questions to add to the 12 that she addresses. We live in an increasingly skeptical and even hostile culture, and we need to be ready to respond to difficult questions like these. The good news is that there is no better example to equip us for this than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, too, was confronted with difficult questions by hostile opponents. And in his responses, we find a model for us to follow, no matter what questions we might be asked in any age, in any context. You can open your Bibles again to Matthew 22, picking back up in our series, in our passages, Matthew 22, verses 15 through 46. 15 through 46. The last time we were in Matthew, we left off the day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We've entered into the last week of Jesus' life before his death. The religious leaders of Israel have set themselves in opposition to Jesus, while the crowds have come to believe at this point that this is the Messiah. Jesus has just finished telling these leaders a series of parables, warning them about rejecting him and what that means. Well, our passage picks up this morning with their response to these parables of warning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's their response to his warning parables. What follows in the rest of our passage today is 
a series of questions meant to trap Jesus. These are calculated attempts, making, trying to make Jesus trip up and, and invalidating his authority before the people. This morning, as we walk through this text, what we're going to see are three things that Jesus does in response to these questions. And what he does teaches us how to respond to difficult questions in our own day. Three things that Jesus does in response to difficult questions. The first thing he does is Jesus discerns the heart of his questioners. Jesus discerns the heart of his questioners. And we see this as the passage opens in verses 15 through 18. Let's, let's look at that together. Matthew 22, we'll read 15 through 18 to begin. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test? You hypocrites. We'll stop there for now. The first question gives us uh, the fullest glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes. Again, the Pharisees are responding to these parables. They're angry with Jesus. They are threatened by Jesus. And they're also afraid of the people who have come to believe that he's the Messiah. And so what do they do with their desire to be rid of Jesus? Well, they plot, they plan, they strategize. They get together and find a way to entangle Jesus in his words. What they do is they come up with what they think is an impossible question to answer. A question that, in their minds, will inevitably create a problem for Jesus, no matter what he says. It's the kind of question that that is going to get you in hot water, no matter what you say. Before we get to the question itself, however, notice who the Pharisees send to ask the question. They send their own disciples, and then they send a group of people known as the Herodians. And this is all very intentional. This is all part of their plan a younger group of disciples to give the appearance of a genuine seeking, and then a group along with them who would put pressure on him in the moment to answer in a certain way. And that's not all. Again, before we get to the question, Matthew tells us that when they approached Jesus, they piled on praises. You're true. You teach God's way truthfully. You don't care what others think. You aren't swayed by appearances. Now here's the thing. All of this actually is true about Jesus. But on the mouths of the Pharisees' disciples, it was strategic flattery. See, they want Jesus to give an honest answer because an honest answer is what would get Jesus in trouble. They're trying to get him to disregard the social consequences of what he might say. And so the question comes finally in verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now this question is framed for a yes or no answer. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And here's here's why they frame it this way. If Jesus responds, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, he's going to be going against the majority of the Jewish people who were zealously opposed to Rome and who didn't believe that this was good to pay this tax. But if Jesus responds, no, it's not lawful, well, then he puts himself in danger of being an insurrectionist, in danger of being against Rome. You see, there's no winning answer for Jesus in this. The trap has been set. The trap has been laid. But Jesus knows a trap when he sees a trap. And before he even answers their question, look at what he says in verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? So Jesus sees through their flattery, through this whole approach that makes it seem like a genuine occasion. And he sees their evil intent. 
Jesus says that they're hypocrites, that is, they're play actors, they're putting on a mask of genuineness when actually they're ingenuine when they come. And here we see this first lesson that we need to learn from Jesus today when responding to a difficult question. We have to discern the heart of our questioners. We have to discern where the question is coming from. Not only hear the question being asked, but we need to discern the heart posture of the one who asks it. There's a medieval theologian you might have heard of named Anselm, and Anselm coined the phrase, faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. By this, he underscored the necessity of beginning with a disposition of trust if we're to gain spiritual understanding, that we must begin with the right heart posture. But what's often the case, and this is what we need to discern, is that people's questions aren't following the principle of faith-seeking understanding. They're following a different principle that we might call unbelief-seeking validation unbelief seeking validation. That is, it's not that someone is asking questions with a genuine desire to understand and believe. They're asking questions to validate their unbelief. They're asking questions with a pre-commitment not to believe. Here's why this is so important, because our goal in these occasions must never be to win a debate. Our goal as followers of Christ must always be to reach the heart. And if we're going to reach the heart, we must first discern the posture of the heart. We don't want to get caught in these circles of endless debate with someone whose heart isn't even after the truth. So how do we do this? How might we discern the heart behind someone's questions? Proverbs 25 gives us this piece of wisdom. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, we need to cultivate the skill of drawing out the purposes of someone's heart. It's something that we need to learn to do. And the most important component of that skill is this. We must learn to know people well. See, throughout the Gospels, Jesus knows people's thoughts. You know, the Pharisees are over here thinking of something, just thinking. And then Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and, and he's able to speak to the heart because he knows people thoroughly. We're not Jesus. We don't have that kind of immediate access to someone's thoughts and someone's hearts. But what does that mean? Well, it means that we need to work hard at gaining that knowledge. We must, we must learn to ask good questions of people. We must learn to get to know people. We must need to, to learn what is going on in someone's heart. We ask questions about their stories. We ask about their interests, their desires, their fears. We need to learn to plumb the depths of someone's heart and see what's there. As we come to know people better, we're going to be more equipped to discern the posture of their hearts toward Christ. There's a call here to real knowledge and relationship if we're going to respond well to people's questions. As we discern the posture of the heart, we'll know better how to answer each person. And that's what we see Jesus do next in this passage. Knowing the heart, knowing the posture that they're coming from, he displays God's wisdom in his answers. This is the second thing we see today. Jesus displays God's wisdom in his answers. This is, I think, the main thing in this passage. Jesus is wise. Jesus is so incredibly wise that his wisdom could be nothing less than God's wisdom. In this passage, we see that he's going to be asked three questions. 
And each time he replies with divine wisdom that silences his opposition. And it causes the people who are listening to be amazed and to marvel. Let's just look at each of these in turn and see the wisdom of Christ. We've already heard the first question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now look at the wisdom of his response starting in verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So their trap assumed that Jesus would have to give a yes or no answer to their question. But look at how Jesus avoids that. He asked them to bring the coin for the tax. It's a silver Roman coin called a denarius. And just like our coins today have passed presidential figures on them, this coin had the image of Caesar on it. Caesar's face on the coin. And this meant at the very least that this coin belonged to Caesar. It belonged to Caesar's government. It belonged to Rome. And so Jesus draws the conclusion Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If the coin has Caesar's image on it, though that, and you've got that coin, well, that means you're under his authority in some way, and you must pay what you owe. But Jesus doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, well, that would have been a yes. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and render to God the things that are God's. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. If something has the image of Caesar on it, well, that thing must be rendered to Caesar. But what is it in this world that has the image of God on it? Not just a coin, right? It's, 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 we, we are. We, we, we are the image of God, humans. We bear God's image. And so the effect of his answer is this. Give your taxes to Caesar, but give your whole selves to God. Caesar is a steward under God's authority. Yes, recognize not give to him what is owed, but give everything to God. He is your ultimate authority. This is really the foundation for all that would later come in the New Testament about Christians' relationship to human governments. We're under the stewarded authority of governments, but under the ultimate authority of God at the same time. We obey man until it requires us to disobey God. But the wisdom of Jesus in this moment is what Matthew wants us to see, because when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. I mean, this, this one, they, they had plotted and planned, and it just falls flat on its face. They, they, it didn't work. Jesus evades the trap. As soon as the Pharisees leave, Matthew tells us that the Sadducees came, and they too come with a test. Verses 23 to 28. It's interesting, as we just went through Ruth, you'll see that background in their scenario. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now notice that Matthew reminds us in verse 23 that the Sadducees didn't actually believe in the resurrection. They only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, or actual scripture. They denied the more explicit passages that came later, as in Daniel 12, where a coming day of resurrection is clearly taught. So, so they denied all that. And the question is, why would they be asking this question in the first place about a resurrection and what life in the resurrection is like if they don't even believe in it? 
Well, it's the same reason, again, it's the heart posture. It's the same reason that a modern scientist might come and ask you, how did Jonah survive in the belly of the fish? He's not really asking, right? He's trying to show that the belief is irrational, and that's what they're trying to do by this setup and this scenario. We don't believe this, but let's say this is the case. What would you say to that? Well, look at the wisdom of Christ's response to such a question. Not just dealing with the subject matter, but dealing with them and their hearts and their disposition. Verses 29 through 33, Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So first, Jesus exposes the problem. They don't know their Bibles, and they don't know the power of God. They don't know their Bibles because they've brought their own assumptions to the question in the first place. They're assuming that life in the resurrection is going to be a certain way, but Jesus corrects them. He says, our human relationships in the resurrection are going to be analogous to those of angels in heaven. You, don't, you just don't know your Bibles. It's worth pointing out that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. <laughs> and so... That, that's intentional, right? Jesus is digging in here to say, say, it's like the angel, oh, you don't believe in them, forgot. He's exposing how lacking their knowledge of Scripture really is. They don't know their Bibles, and they don't know the power of God because they fail to believe that God can do this, that he can raise the dead. Here, Jesus uses a Scripture that comes from the Torah, a Scripture they would have accepted to show that the resurrection is taught even there. It's one that they would have known quite well. God's saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now we read that, and they probably read that thinking this is, about, this is scripture about God. But Jesus draws out a surprise observation that this scripture teaches us about humans too. The tense that God uses in this verse matters. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had died and ceased to exist as the Sadducees taught, then God would have said that he was the God of Abraham, he was the God of Isaac, he was the God of Jacob. That's not what God said. He, he is their God because they are still alive in some way. And if their death was not the end, then surely there will be a day of resurrection for all of God's people. This is what Jesus proves to them from the scriptures that they themselves believed. And once again, in wisdom, Jesus evades their trap and he silences them. And the crowds marvel at his ability in this moment. This leads to the Pharisees realizing, well, maybe we should try again. Verses 34 through 36. When the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the first test of the Pharisees was meant to put Jesus in a lose-lose situation. There was no good answer. This test is a little different. It's meant to embroil Jesus in a debate that the rabbis of their own day have been unable to resolve. It's, it's, it's meant to just get Jesus into the mud of an issue that no one could really give a good answer to. Jesus, however, shows no hesitation to enter that debate. Like, if we were debating eschatology, most of us would say, like, I mean, I'll tell you what I think, I'm not really sure. That's not the way Jesus handles this. He says, I'll, I'll tell you the answer. Look at his response in verses 37 through 40. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
Just a few things about Jesus' response. First, just notice the wisdom of it. There's, there's both a vertical and a horizontal component to how he answers. One having to do with our relationship to the Lord. The other having to do with our relationship toward our neighbors. Second, these two components are bound together by one essential command, the command to love. And so you can see how this answer really does encompass all of the other commands that you might have. Vertical commands, horizontal commands, all brought under this call to love. And third, Jesus doesn't say, this is, this is one possible solution. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets depend on my interpretation of this. He boldly states, this is the answer. To lose love for God, to lose love for neighbor, is to lose the very heart of obedience to God's commands. He responds to this test meant to embroil him in this debate that no one could solve, and he responds with an authoritative answer that once again is met with no rebuttal at all. Nothing for them to say. In all of this, Jesus displays the wisdom of God. He navigates each question with just astounding skill. He avoids entanglement. He silences his opponents. He causes the crowds to marvel. His answers show biblical boldness and cultural winsomeness in a perfect combination something that we struggle so much to do in our day and age, to be both bold and winsome, true and inviting. Jesus, Jesus does it all here. And church, this is the kind of wisdom that we must strive to display when people ask us questions today. This is what we should strive for. And you might think to yourself, I could never hope to respond with this kind of skillful thinking and biblical knowledge and, and quick, quick thinking on your feet like Jesus seems to be able to do. And the truth is that we're not up for that task at all. But I want to remind you what we read in Acts 4, when these same religious leaders confront Peter and John, asking them questions, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. How were Peter and John equipped to respond to confrontations from these same religious leaders after Jesus had ascended to heaven? They had been with him. They had learned from him. They had lived with him. They were disciples of him. And through his word, by his spirit, as we read the word and study and meditate on it and listen to it, Jesus is able to equip us with his wisdom today as well. We don't need to be the smartest people in the room. We have the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ to help us respond with the wisdom of Christ. And all we need to do is devote ourselves to being with Jesus. As we spend time with Jesus, as we learn from Jesus, as we live as disciples of Jesus, he will prepare us to respond with his wisdom. When Jesus was confronted with difficult questions, he discerned the heart he responded by demonstrating God's wisdom in his answers. And finally, the third thing that we see him do in this passage is Jesus directs the conversation to himself. Jesus directs the conversation to himself. So far, Jesus has successfully responded to questions that were meant to trap and entangle him. But Jesus is not content just to evade their traps. He's not content just to win a debate. He desires to reach the heart, and so he asks one more question of his own to them. Look at verses 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He sets up the conversation by asking the Pharisees about the Messiah, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now we think Jesus Christ, but we've got to remember that 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 connection wasn't tight yet. The Christ was the Messiah predicted in Scripture. This was not a question directly about Jesus. This was a question about what the Scriptures taught. This was a Bible study question. And the answer was given. He's the son of David. That's what the Bible teaches. The Old Testament prophets over and over again tell that there is a coming Davidic king who will be Israel's Messiah. And we've seen this in Matthew. When people did believe Jesus was the Messiah, what did they call him? The son of David. This was, this was standard fare. This is the answer that Jesus expected. This is the right answer. He's the son of, son of David. Having established that truth, Jesus then quotes from the 110th Psalm, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because Jesus so astoundingly connected it to himself. He quotes that psalm and he asks, how is it that if the Messiah is David's son, that David himself would refer to the Messiah as his Lord. Psalm 110 was written by David. It was taken to be a messianic prophecy. But Jesus draws out this observation where David says in the psalm, the Lord, referring to God, says to my Lord, referring to the Messiah. But if he's his son, then how is he his Lord? David, Jesus draws out this simple question. How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord at the same time? If he's his son, he's inferior to him. That's, that, that's how sonship works. And yet he calls him Lord. Well, Jesus answered their questions, but they do not answer his question. Using nothing but the scriptures that they themselves hold to, Jesus challenges these limited categories that they have, and he leaves them silent just to reflect on what he has said. The Messiah's sonship to and lordship over David was an unexplainable reality to them. Unless, of course, we recognize who Jesus is. Jesus is the answer to the question. The way that the Messiah can be both David's son and David's lord is through the mysterious reality we just celebrated for a month. Through the incarnation. The eternal son of God the preeminent one of all creation. He took on our humanity and he entered into our world through the line of David. And he did this not to conquer his enemies and sit on David's throne, but instead to save his enemies by burying their sins on the cross. That death is the only way for sinners to be saved. And this is why Jesus directs the conversation the way he does. The leaders ask about taxes, and they ask about the resurrection, and they ask about the law, but Jesus asks them the most important question of all, what do you think about the Christ? Jesus directs the conversation to that which is most fundamental. He sought to help them come to grips with the reality that he is both the son of David and the son of God. What Jesus did is what we must do, church. We must bring this central question to bear in all of our conversations with those who don't believe. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Has he done what he said he would do? This is the question that needs to be dealt with.
We saw earlier that sometimes people don't come from a place of faith seeking understanding. They, they come from a place of unbelief seeking validation. What we need to realize in that is that this means that their unbelief is not primarily an intellectual issue. Their unbelief is not just because we've not given them good enough answers to their questions. No, unbelief is the fruit of a heart that is predisposed to reject God's truth. Unbelief is the fruit of a heart that's ready to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People don't disbelieve because there aren't good answers. They disbelieve because they don't want to submit their hearts to the God who created them and who they belong to. There's only one thing in this world that's powerful enough to deal with that heart posture. To change that disposition. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. When people ask us questions, we must always direct the conversation back to that good news. Church, the Christian worldview, the biblical faith that we believe in and stand on, it makes less and less sense to the world that's around us. Our doctrines and our ethics are seen as foolish at best and hateful at worst. When people ask us questions, rarely are we going to hear can you please tell me more about that thing you believe? Usually it's going to be something more like, how could you believe that? And when moments like these come, we might be tempted to doubt or to change our beliefs, to change where we land, to make it fit with the way the world thinks, be more palatable to our modern culture. But let me encourage you this morning, by the way that Matthew closes out this chapter. Again, he says in verse 46, Nor from that day... Did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? They stopped asking questions. They stopped trying because they realized they were never going to outdo Jesus. And church, a day like this is coming again. A day is coming when every eye will see Jesus. Every tongue will confess the truth about him. Every knee will bow to his authority and on that day, no one's going to ask any more questions. No one will ask Jesus or his people any more questions. We will not be on the defense anymore. It will be a day when the whole world recognizes that every human was truly made in the image of God and we all belong to him. It will be a day of resurrection to eternal life for God's people and resurrection to eternal destruction for God's enemies. It will be a day when we come to love God and love each other with full perfect love. And it will be the day that we see all things put in subjection to Christ, David's Lord, forever and ever. That day is coming. And so knowing that, let's seek to be faithful witnesses today by discerning the heart of those who ask us questions, displaying God's wisdom in our answers, and always, always, always directing our conversations back to the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to do this. We pray that you would center our hearts on Jesus, that you would overcome our prideful and rebellious dispositions when they enter, that you would melt our hearts continually with the good news of the gospel, and that as we spend time with you and as we are growing disciples of you, Lord, that you would equip us to engage with this world in a way that reaches their hearts. And we pray, Lord, that as we do that, you would be pleased to save some for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, church.